Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Welcome guys and gals to the Mobile Home Park Investing Weekly Podcast we'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bopp. And today's show, we're going to be speaking with environmental consultant, Michael Renz. Michael's the founder and president of Renz and Associates, a small, well-equipped environmental consulting firm which specializes in the assessment and remediation of sites which have been impacted by petroleum and hazardous materials. The firm was established as an alternative to large traditional consulting firms where bigger is not better, it's just more expensive. Years of experience in traditional firms showed Michael and his team that clients want to deal directly with the experts who are actually doing the work, not corporate managers or sales representatives. The small staff at Renz & Associates means clients have direct access to the professionals who are on site and who are personally responsible for the outcome of each project. And so with that, guys, today we're going to be talking with Michael about the importance of performing an environmental inspection prior to purchasing a commercial property, such as a mobile home park. But more specifically, we're going to dive into detail on everything that you need to know related to environmental inspections. And so with that, guys, I'm anxious to get onto the show with Michael. But before we do, here's a quick word from our show sponsor, Sunrise Capital Investors. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here with Sunrise Capital Investors. As you are hopefully already well aware if you've been a listener for any period of time, my goal has always been to provide you with as much value as I possibly can through my two podcasts, Real Estate Investing for Cashflow and the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. As our audience continues to grow, literally, we've been downloaded millions of times by folks in over 125 countries. I've had thousands of people reach out looking to get involved in our niche. And that's the phenomenal niche of mobile home park investing. For those that don't know, I've been a full-time real estate investor for nearly 20 years now, and I've personally invested in and have owned apartment complexes, various commercial properties, hundreds of single-family rentals, and I've interviewed some of the most successful investors in just about every other asset class, and I've arrived at this one very simple conclusion. Mobile home parks are hands down the best investment I've found to date. Why? They provide investors with the best risk-adjusted returns out of any other real estate sector that I've seen. Investing in real estate can get complicated, and I really want to simplify this process for you. If you're someone who wants to diversify away from the uncertainty of Wall Street and allocate a percentage of your real estate portfolio to mobile home parks, but maybe you don't have the time nor the inclination to personally locate good deals yourself, then our team will do it for you. At Sunrise Capital Investors, our team specializes in the acquisitions and management of undervalued and highly profitable mobile home parks. And we are now providing accredited investors with an opportunity to participate directly alongside our team in our up-and-coming deals. And let me say this, I believe that we are hands down the best in our space at sourcing highly profitable off-market deals. That's really what makes us unique in this niche and as investment managers. As stewards of your capital, we truly are aligned with our investors. We've structured our investment fund so that we as a company are incentivized in the same way the investor is. 
which is through the performance of the investment itself. In addition, we want to make sure that we not only make money for our investors, but that they understand how it's being made. That's why we provide our accredited partners with a private monthly podcast that walks them through the detailed updates on how their investment is performing. And we're very transparent, providing you with the good, the bad, and the ugly at times. And so if you'd like to learn more about the partnership opportunities with our team here at Sunrise, please go visit sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and click on the investors link to get signed up. It's absolutely free and you'll get placed on the priority list of when new opportunities come along. Also, feel free to call us at 833-CASHFLOW without the O. Again, that's 833-CASHFLOW without the O. And one of our investor relations team members will help you schedule an appointment to speak with one of our managing principals. If you have questions, go ahead and schedule a call and let's get on the phone and talk. And with that, guys, I'd like to leave with one last thought. From the time that I wake up in the morning to the time that I lay my head down the rest of the evening... My number one priority with everything I do, whether it be recording this podcast, working for our investors, helping each of you reach your investment goals, to providing a great experience to each of our residents who reside in our communities, is to add huge amounts of value to everyone that I come in contact with. Now, with that being said, I look forward to the opportunity of bringing value to you through Sunrise and through this podcast. Thank you for your time. Now, let's go ahead and get back to the show. All right, guys. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest for today's show, Michael Renz. Michael, how are you doing today, my friend? Well, life is a treat, Kevin. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you joining us. Looking forward to having this discussion with you. And this is a very important discussion. This is one of those uh, discussions that you need to listen to before you buy your first piece of commercial property. And it's one that could really bite you in the rear end if you don't uh, follow Michael's advice here today. So, Michael, my goal here today is to educate our listeners as to, for those that don't know, what an environmental assessment is, but more importantly, why it's important, right? Like, like really why it's a, it's a preventative measure that you absolutely need to take pretty much every time you consider buying a piece of commercial real estate. And so with that, before we dive into the, the meat and potatoes of the call today, if you could, Michael, maybe take a few minutes and give us a little bit more of a background of yourself and, and how you got into this industry. Well, geology is one of those things that everybody's absolutely uh, interested in by nature. I mean, what what kid doesn't pick up a rock and wonder what it is or where it came from? And in my case, I was a climbing bum and was sitting on the um, middle saddle between the Grand and uh, Middle Teton, wondering why the world looked different when I looked to the east opposed to the west. So I rode my motorcycle to the Ohio State University and almost 10 years later came out as a full-fledged geologist. I'm a hydrogeologist, and that's actually an important thing. Geology is real broad. I mean, you've got the the volcano folks, the dinosaur kids, the folks that are into gas and oil or coal or whatnot. Hydrogeologist deals with groundwater. And why that's relevant to the environmental field is how bad stuff gets from where it's dumped to where you do not want it to be is via groundwater. So I make my living by looking at sites for people and determining, well, is this likely contaminated? And then if the answer is yes, then I figure out how extensive is it, figure out uh, what are the traits of the situation or the characteristics of the situation we can exploit to fix that problem, and then try to to do so. I'm in the business of helping people avoid those icebergs. But okay. anyway, that's that's the short version of it. Okay. What kind of real estate is this applicable to? I mean, is it any type of property in general? Pretty much so, especially commercial though. Traditionally, we dealt mostly with what you would expect urban sites that had multiple generations of redevelopment. You know, somebody's going to go in and redevelop a shopping mall or whatnot, and there's been a dry cleaners there. Perhaps, uh, well, we had a a client that built uh, 
uh, manufactured housing and they wanted to buy a, um, an old steel mill because it was right, you know, it was in the middle of the city where all the infrastructure was there, labor was there, but it was polluted. And it wasn't the stuff that you can come in with shovels and buckets and get rid of. It's the tough stuff that's underground you can't get at. And so we'd work on those sites. But about almost 10 years ago, I think it was 2009, we got a call for somebody who wanted to buy a mobile home park. Hmm. I'd been doing this for two decades at that point. I told him, you're wasting your time. You don't need to do this for a mobile home park. There's nothing there. Client was insistent and I declined the work, but they called back the next day and we looked at the park. There was nothing there. But since then, we've we've been on between probably 700 and 1,000 mobile home parks from Alaska to Florida. Wow. And yeah, wow is right. It, and, <laughs> you know, it's I've seen, I've been doing this for over 30 years and I've seen a lot of really unusual situations in many different types of real estate settings, but mobile home parks bring us the most interesting stuff. So anyway, to answer your question, commercial property in general, okay. uh, whether it's um, a mobile home park or it's, it's an industrial complex, we, we look at it. I'm interested to know why you might have told that individual that the very first mobile home park client, why you would have recommended that they don't need an environmental assessment done. I mean, just generally speaking, is there points in time where you might give that advice of like, I, I don't think it's really worth spending the money to do this? Well, you know, with most of the sites that we have ever looked at, you would expect, you know, there was good reason or obvious reasons to worry about, you know, ethyl methyl death being there. But mobile home parks are so often built out in God's country, you know, they're outside the city limits, or they're in a rural setting, something like that. It's like, it's not like looking at a property downtown, that, you know, in 1897 was a coal gasification plant. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said that. But what we have found is there most certainly are environmental issues at mobile home parks. They're not as common, but the risk is a lot like taking a swim off the Atlantic coast. The odds of meeting a shark, not that great. But the consequences are so severe, mm-hmm. you better take a look. And Kevin, we have found the most unusual things you can imagine. You know, everything from meth lab dump sites. You know, those the meth wastes are actually hazardous wastes, and you don't want to you know buy something like that and then have to deal with pushing that stuff around or disposing of it. Underground storage tanks, and sometimes it's not even the mobile home park; it's the site next door that's been leaking fuel or whatnot that's gotten under the park. We've looked at parks where they're on the edge of the city, you know, with a great view of pastoral land. But three blocks away, there was a dry cleaners that had a massive release of trichloroethylene, Hmm. went underground, went under the park, and now it's a problem for the park. So it turns out there are reasons to do it at parks. They're just not as obvious as the um, classical, you know, gas station or industrial site. Yeah, I was going to ask you to give me an example, and you kind of just did, of, of maybe a park looking from the outside in, you would have placed your bet on the fact that there is no environmental contamination. No. Like you just gave the example of the dry cleaner being three blocks away. When you first looked at that, that site, did you think there was a chance that, that, that there could be contamination based on the current layout and the proximity of where that hazard could be, which is that dry cleaner? Three, three, three blocks is fairly a long distance. Were you surprised by that one? I, I really was. And again, I'm a hydrogeologist and that's, you know, my, my gig is what happens to stuff underground. And I've been doing it a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And walking through this park, it was a beautiful park. I would not have expected it. But, you know, our research extends out to a mile away. And it was only because we did all this historic research and, and looked at federal and state databases that we discovered that, hey, you know, here, here's this, this site. And it just wasn't that the dry cleaners was there. 
as it turned out, this was a real problem. It led us to talk to the local water plant that said, yeah, you know, we're east of that mobile home park and we have to deal with this, you know, trichloroethylene and its degradation products. And it certainly is moving under the park. So wouldn't have expected it, but yeah, it most certainly was uh, a real issue. Let's talk about the remediation efforts of something like that. So, well, first and foremost, the big question I have is once that was discovered, does that become public information? I mean, to where that owner of that community, obviously there was a buyer involved. The buyer hired you to go in and do the assessment. Now that this contamination was exposed or discovered, is it the owner's requirement? Are they required by law now to disclose that in the future forever? Or is it just general public information where anyone could find it out anyway? Well, this is general public information. Anybody could find out. But you, you do ask an important question. That is confidentiality. Very often, sellers, you know, they're worried that when we look at a, at their property for a client who may buy the property, they're, they're worried that we're going to run and tell EPA or whoever or anybody about our findings. That's not how we work. We're under no obligation to tell anybody anything except our clients. Our work is extraordinarily confidential. Sometimes we'll be on a looking at a property for a potential buyer, the buyer is our client, and the owner will say, well, how's it going? What have you found out? And we have a, uh, we have a whole collection of very polite, of, but very effective dodges to answering that question. <laughs> We're like accountants, you know, your business is your business and nobody else's, and, and we only discuss it with you. So no, if we discover something that's not otherwise known, we have no obligation to let anyone know except our client. In fact, we're obligated not to let anybody know except mm, our Very interesting. So that, that owner of that property then, do they have a legal obligation? Let's say that current seller or current buyer backs out because of this uh, discovery. Does the seller of that property, the owner of that property, have a legal obligation then to disclose to the next potential buyer that there is a potential contamination that was discovered? Or no? Is it really buyer beware? What the buyer knows is, you know, the buyer's obligations are really between them and, and their legal counsel. One of the great things about being a geologist is you don't have to practice law. You know, we tell our client, well, here's the situation. And then the client, what they communicate to the uh, the seller, really not our business. We don't know. And what the um, seller does with, with their the information they, they happen to come by through our client, that's between them and their lawyer. So, yeah, that's a great thing about this. We have no legal entanglements whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. So what happened with that particular example? Did they remediate it or you know, what happened? Did, did your client end up buying that property? And if so, what'd they have to do? Well, our, our client bought the property. And the fact that there was trichloroethylene running underneath the property, it was at about 20 feet. And our role was to figure out, okay, we know this stuff is here. EPA knows this stuff is here. And everybody, you know, knows who's responsible for the pollution and they're being held responsible. The question for us was, how does this impact our client? And the first thing we were concerned about, is there a route of exposure? And what we did was we installed special types of borings from which we extracted samples of air from underground, from soil gas, because the people living in the park, they were going to drink that water. You know, there was no route of exposure that way. But the question is, well, could the vapors from that stuff, it's volatile, could it harm the people in the park? So we did a study that was, you know, pretty inexpensive and figured out, no, it's it's not a, a risk. And this is known. And our client worked in the impact that that uh, spill had on the park and went ahead and bought it. And I know that they sold it later at a profit. So environmental bad news is not always bad news. Sometimes it's a good thing. Okay. 
Give me a story of the strangest thing. You, you mentioned at the very beginning that you've, of all the, I guess, of all the clients that you've had, the mobile home park clients typically have brought you the, the strangest situations. And so if you would mind humoring us a little bit and sharing one of those strange stories and what you discovered. <laughs> you know, I, I'm Irish and given the storytelling, so I'm really going to have to use some self-restraint here. There's, so many, uh, there's, there's, there's been some really spectacular ones. I'll, I'll tell you one that was truly unexpected. We looked at a park that was in kind of an uh, urban setting. It was a beautiful park. It was a gated community, you know, just ideal for retiring. I think the price tag, this might have been about eight years ago, was just under $4 million. And we're uh, walking the property and, you know, I'm looking around at the landscape. And it's, I mean, it's a beautiful park, you know, homes are well-maintained. It's really appealing. But you know, as a geologist, I'm looking at the lumps and bumps in the landscape, and these are just not things that Mother Nature created. I did some research, and I thought, wow, you know, there is not a geologic process that does this. Well, it turns out this beautiful community was built on top of a landfill that operated back from about 1930 to about 1950. Mm. And that's back when there was no regulation of hazardous waste whatsoever. And the reason that the landscape you know, the topography was a little unnatural was because there's some differential settling. And then when I dug into it further, there had been events where methane would just come roaring out of cracks in the ground. The owner, when I, you know, found out about, I told the client, I called the client up and said, look, it's not my place to give you business advice, but if you were my brother-in-law, I'd tell you to run now. In fact, you know, if you choose to run, we're not even going to finish the project. You know, we're going to charge you a couple hundred bucks for what we've done so far. But if I were you, I would run. And the owner of the park, it left them in a terrible spot because all of a sudden they realized they're essentially on top of a Superfund site. Value of that property probably went from three or four million dollars to probably three or four million dollars of the liability. Wow. Um, in terms of strange things, that's not the strangest thing. We were on a park recently out in the Midwest. It was a beautiful park. And it had one of its appealing aspects, had a lot of undeveloped acreage that you could expand. And the local demographics are great for a mobile home park. You know, it was just local economy was good. There was going to be labor coming into the community that would need affordable housing. So anyway, I'm, you know, I'm walking the park and then I get out in the weeds. I'm looking around. I see some strange building foundations and some partial buildings. So I thought, oh, I wonder what was here. You know, this is sort of odd. We're, you know, couple miles from town. Why would there be these old foundations? And even though I'm an old geologist, I don't, I haven't seen everything, but so I called up one of my associates and my associates are like me. They're hydrogeologists with, you know, 20, 30 years of experience. You know, I said, Todd, you know, I'm looking at something I don't understand. And he said, great, text me a photograph. So I, I beamed him some photographs and, and uh, he rings me back and he goes, Mike, Mike, that's a munitions plant you're on. He goes, not only that, are those buildings foundations are associated with a munitions plant, specifically <laughs> those types of foundations and structures, that's the part of the munitions plant that was so dangerous, they would locate it like a mile from the main body of the plant. It's where they made detonators. And I, I said to him, I said, Todd, well, what are some of the environmental risks I, we might be facing here? He said, well, you know, landfills, they would just bury stuff during the war. And, he, and I said, okay, what kind of chemicals? He goes, well, you know, nitrates, things that aren't that worried. He goes, but here's the kicker, Mike. There could be unexploded detonators in landfills that people don't know about, you know, where they just buried this stuff. Oh my God. He goes, you know, the thing that you need to tell your client, the, the, the risk scenario is this. 
some kids out there, you know, on a perfect summer afternoon with a shovel, digging a hole in the ground and hits an old detonator and sets it off. Because that's, that's kind of a serious risk. You might really want to warn your client. And that was one where we called them up and said, we don't need to finish this study for you. you know, I think we have enough information here, but I would have never expected it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that's definitely a huge uh, liability, I would say. <laughs> and, and totally unexpected. We had done a lot of historical research. And some of the other things that we find that just are not apparent at all that you wouldn't expect, we, we find this out west a lot where it, it's a nice park. It's up against, you know, it's, it's just the right distance from the, the town or village. We look into it. And there are no environmental records that, you know, there's nothing from EPA that says this is bad. But we look at an old USGS topographic map from 19, I don't know, 47. And we still see that it's all fill. And it turns out, yeah, the, the guy that owned the, the land and built the park decided, well, I can make this a bigger park by filling in some of these low spots with mine tailings. And those tailings are loaded with lead, chromium, arsenic. Just you would never have expected that. What are mine tailings? When you dig up things like gold, you get a lot of stuff that you don't want. A lot okay. of you know, rock and debris. People like to think that, oh, if it comes from nature, it's good. Well, as, as a geologist, I can tell you that's absolutely wrong. Mother Nature makes <laughs> really nasty things. And when you dig up fresh rock, it starts to weather. And a lot of times what weathers out of it are nasty things like arsenic. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's a concern for sure. All righty. How about any, I love these stories, and I think these stories are very helpful to giving us a, a much clearer picture as to the importance of getting an environmental assessment done on a piece of property. How about a, a story that you've heard directly or indirectly uh, through the industry of, of kind of a worst case scenario that presented itself after someone did not get an environmental assessment done and ultimately purchased a contaminated piece of property? Do you have any of those? Well, I, you know, I, I was just flipping through my mental Rolodex here, and um, yeah, I, I have one for you that I'm going to have to edit a little bit for the sake of confidentiality, but we have a really smart client. When you think about diligent, savvy people, these are who you, the kind of folks you think of. And they called me up and they said, well, Mike, we, we had to use a, a big consulting firm to do an environmental assessment for a park that we were buying. It was a big firm, real big firm. They gave it a clean bill of health, but now we have a problem. And he, why this problem is in national news, I don't know. They said, here's the deal, Mike. There's a landfill next door. They said that was okay, but it turns out that the landfill is on fire. And, oh um, well, but it's you know, landfills burn sort of like coal mines. It's when you say fire, it's not flames at the surface. Underground. It's not a smoky the bear. It's underground. It's more akin to a chemical reaction. It's just a uh, highly exothermic reaction. Well, okay, that's, that's not the worst thing in the world. Then they said, but here's the deal. The fire's moving from, it's, it was sort of a long rectangular landfill. The fire was moving from the one end to the other. Well, on the other end, this is the charming part. There were radioactive wastes from the Manhattan Project that had been illegally dumped there. Oh my gosh. And they couldn't get control of the fire. And if it got to the point where it hit the radioactive waste, this stuff would get ejected into the atmosphere. Landfills are a bit like pies. And, you know, the, the cap is sort of like the pie crust on the top. And when you burn the fill, the crust collapses and lets the steam out. And that's what would have happened with this. They had a, a proper phase one done. But what had happened was these big firms, you know, they have lots of overhead. Phase one environmental studies aren't very profitable. And so they send out, 
you know, the youngest, least expensive people who just didn't spot this stuff. So, mm. you know, it wasn't easy for them to connect the dots. They didn't connect the dots. And so it's a bad thing for the client. Does any of the law, liability fall back on that environmental firm that might have <laughs> missed that <laughs> issue? <laughs> well, it was, it was a situation where I wish that I was Mike the lawyer rather than Mike the geologist. But that was my advice to the client. I, I had some other things to say. But I said, yeah, I would call my lawyer if I were you, Mr. Client. Yeah, you know, environmental consultants, they're like any professional, like a doctor, lawyer, accountant. You're responsible for the advice you give. And no matter what, you know, a lot of these reports you pick up, they're just filled with what I call weasel words. You know, Mm -hmm. oh, well, we did this, but you can't hold us responsible. No, we paid you for a professional opinion and you're qualified. So, you know, if you tell us something and it's not right and we suffer as a result, you're on the hook. Hmm. Very interesting. Give us an idea, general general idea, Mike, if you could, of the average cost. And, and that's probably a loaded question because I'm sure there's a big range there. But we're talking about mobile home parks today. The Assuming the average mobile home park uh, encompasses maybe, what, you know, 15 to 30 acres or so of land. But generally speaking, can you give us a broad range? And this would be for a phase one environmental assessment, not assuming that you might have to go to a phase two, but just for a phase one, what might one expect to pay? Well, well, Kevin, it's, fortunately, it's, it's not a loaded question at all. Phase one environmental assessments are primarily done, the primary reason is to establish what's called the innocent landowner defense under Superfund. And I can talk about that in detail later on. But basically, to achieve that, you have to perform what is considered all due inquiry, sort of environmental due diligence. And to answer you know, the question, what is all due inquiry? What's due diligence? The American Society for Testing and Materials came up with a standardized procedure. That society, they, they come up with procedures, standardized procedures for all sorts of stuff so that you can compare apples to apples, you know, whether it's determining the penetration resistance of a football helmet or how flammable um, paint brand is. So the punchline is this. Everybody does phase one environmental assessments the same way. A phase one has a set scope of work. Now, some folks like us, we will add to that. You know, we'll, we'll do more. But when you compare phase one environmental assessments between firms, you're pretty much comparing apples to apples. So the prices are pretty close together. You know, I would I tell clients, oh, budget $2,500, but basically $2,000 to $2,500 is, is, is the range. It's about what you'd pay for an appraisal. Okay. And then I, I know like your firm, uh, you guys are more on a national scale, correct? And so folks that are listening, does it matter based on geography where they're at or where their park might be at that they're looking to buy? I mean, will Renz and Associates, will you guys travel? Well, we're a little boutique firm. And, you know, one of the things about being geologists, we'll pay to drive around the country and look at the scenery. You know, that's, you know, doing geology out the car windshield is our favorite thing to do. So <laughs> we, we literally, we work from Alaska to Florida. We charge $1,950 for the study. And then on top of that, we'll add our travel costs, but we cap them at five fifty. And being geologists rather than engineers, that means we travel really cheaply. I can't remember the last time we, we ran up a $550 bill, but wow. the worst case scenario for one of our studies is $2,500. But mostly, you know, we've, we cost the same. It's the local folks. Okay. Um, it sounds like you might be sleeping in your cars then. <laughs> well, I've got a really nice tent, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, joking, that is a perk, you know. Sometimes we have to buy, drive by a national park or a great place to go rock climbing and, you know, so. I say that's uh, an incredible perk. I like it. <laughs> my associates love it too. So, 
No, actually, it's, it's easy. We, what we do to keep our costs down is we bundle projects. If we're working in Colorado, we're stopping at sites in Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, Minnesota. We just connect the dots and leapfrog across the country. And that's how we divide our travel costs. Generally so speaking, what's the turnaround time? How much should someone budget as far as the time frame to get this done during your due diligence phase? Well, everybody's always in a hurry, but you want to do it right. We tell clients, budget 30 days. And we try to deliver within 21 to 30 days. We can get information pretty quickly. You know, we can do background research really, really rapidly. The last thing we do is we walk the site. We, we do it in that order so that when we view the property, we're looking at it with educated eyes. But oftentimes we can get uh, information to clients and I hate to say this, but we've done it in 24 hours beginning to end locally. But, wow. you know, sometimes as short as five days, what we'll do is we'll send a summary report. And that's kind of like an executive summary. It has the stuff that, that you and your lawyer and your banker want to know. And then the only difference between our summary report and the final report that we send is the final report's got all that really interesting stuff like the hydrogeology of the area. That's, yeah, it's, that's fascinating, but largely of, of no consequence to, to mm-hmm. um, the client. When might a phase two be triggered? When does that happen? A phase two is triggered whenever we find something that suggests, gee whiz, there could be a problem here. I like to, to, to characterize things this way. Phase one's kind of like a physical exam where your physician, will, she'll set you down and ask you a bunch of questions about your history, look you over, you know, prod and poke you and whatnot. And if she doesn't find anything, that's the end of it. If a phase one, you know, when we go through all this historic stuff, we go through all the databases, all the interviews, we don't find anything alarming. The report concludes we found no recognized environmental conditions. That's the end of the process. Have a nice day. Or alternatively, the answer is, wow, we found this thing. You know, we interviewed old Susan who used to work at the, the park in the 50s. And she said there used to be an underground storage tank. Or we walked the park and we saw this. And this means this sometimes. We need to do X, Y, and Z to sort that out. The kind of things that can precipitate a phase two is we looked at a property where there was... Um, and the ground storage tank next door that had, had a leak, it was unassessed. We don't know if it crossed the property line and got on our client's property. So we had to go in and drill some holes in the ground, pull some samples, pull some vapor samples as well. Sometimes it's not even, a phase two might not even be dealing with contamination. One of the things we do is we look for wetlands. If you're buying a park that's got some undeveloped property or undeveloped portion to it that you want to expand, We'll look at that and say we call up the National Wetlands Inventory Map and we see things suggest it's a wetland or it's mapped as a wetland. The report may come back and say, eh, we recommend you do a phase two, but not pull samples or anything like that. You need to do an official wetland delineation to make sure that if you buy this park, you know, those weeds over there that look kind of cattailish, that you can actually build on that without getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. I've got a funny story I wanted, I wanted to bring up as you were telling your stories. We've only had one run-in with an actual environmental contamination. It happened last year in a, on a park that we were purchasing or in contract to purchase. We did not ultimately purchase it in Pennsylvania. What we discovered during the phase one is that about six years prior, a disgruntled tenant 
uh, disgruntled tenant that was getting evicted for not paying their rent decided to go back to the fuel oil tank behind the house. I don't know how many gallons those things are. I'm guessing they're probably 100 plus gallons in size. And being disgruntled, and it was fairly full, it was about three quarters of the way full. He drilled a hole into the side of it and let it drain out as he was leaving the park. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, ultimately, I think they, they, they estimated about 75 gallons of fuel oil had spilled, completely spilled into the, uh, the soil. During our inspection period, we, we found that we discovered it and the owner decided to go ahead and remediate that. But during that period of time, we ultimately found a few additional underground storage tanks on a couple other parcels and we canceled the project. But that project alone, the remediation side of fuel oil being spilled out, ultimately cost him. Number one, he had to remove the home from the site. So he lost an entire trailer. And on top of that, I think he spent probably about $17,000 by you know, excavation and also capping. You probably know a little bit more of probably what happened there, but ultimately had to excavate a lot of the soil out, put some type of cap down, uh, some type of cap in place, and then actually fill it, you know, bring some new soil and infill back into place. But uh, lost an entire site, lost a trailer, and spent a good, great, great deal of money due to a prior tenant's negligence. Yeah. <laughs> Disgruntled ten- tenant's negligence, which scary story thinking about wh- how tenants really can hurt you. <laughs> well, well, Kevin, you, you bring up a good point. You know, sometimes we do these studies and we'll find things in the environmental record where a disgruntled employee or, or resident has called uh, EPA and filed a, a, a fallacious report. Or sometimes they just show up, property says, oh, it's had a spill. And you dig into it, oh, it was sewage. It's of no consequence. Or it's something like, oh, somebody dumped, you know, sticks. Occasionally, we will find problems that you describe like that. So we had a client that had a, uh, an assessment done. And during the interview process, a uh, former employee said, well, there was an underground storage tank and a landfill on the property. And a big firm said, oh, this is going to cost $125,000 to deal with. And we looked at it. We ran surface geophysics, found out there was no landfill ever. We found the underground storage tank. We brought in our geoprobe, punched a hole in the ground next to it. It hadn't leaked. And we had the tank removed. The total cost of all that, $17,000. So sometimes, you know, what you read or hear is just not true. And the situation's much better. And even when it is true, when it is, there is a problem, there are a lot of really, really inexpensive solutions. It's just these big firms, and they look at them and they go, you know, how much money can we make from this? Mm-hmm. So. So that brings me to my next question, Mike, and what do the folks listening in, what do they need, what kind of questions do they need to be asking in order to find the right firm to work with? Obviously, you guys are a boutique firm. You know what you're doing. You've been doing it many, many, many years. You're, you travel on a national basis, but ultimately, someone new to this, first go around, first rodeo, what types of questions do they need to be asking, whether they call your firm or any other firm to hire to get environmental assessment done? Well, you know, whenever any of us hire an expert, we're always at a disadvantage. You know, when I go to get my car repair, I don't know if the guy who's going to work on it really is a great mechanic or if he's a newbie that's going to miss stuff or, you know, or if he's dishonest and he's just going to hang parts. And you you face the same challenge when you're trying to hire a firm. I think small firms are good because that way you're dealing with, as you saw on my internet site, you're dealing with the actual expert. There's no management structure. There's no, there's no folks in white shirts and ties that are worried about the bottom line. What you want to deal with, with are, are people with dirty boots. Moreover, the folks that you really want to find are hydrogeologists. And the reason I say this is when you look at a spot on the ground, you don't know if it's a big deal or a little deal. Mm-hmm. And if, you've got, if you're dealing with somebody who's got an environmental degree, they don't know. An engineer can't tell you 
the transport potential of, of some stuff that was spilled next door, where hydrogeologists can tell you what's a real problem and what's not a problem. And moreover, a hydrogeologist, these are the people that can actually fix these things. Mm-hmm. Engineers, they, they make assumptions and stuff, and they're really practical and smart, but they can't tell you, you know, how it works underground. So they, you know, their estimates and their conceptual models are not always accurate. And worst of all, are, are the kids with the environmental degrees? They're, they're jack of all trades, master of none. Very often we look at reports where people have recommended, oh, you got to have a phase two. And we look at it and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. We just looked, we just visited a site this week in Pennsylvania where some firm said, well, there was a junkyard next door. You need to you need to walk along and do a photo ionization detector screening along the property line. First of all, there's no such procedure. And if you did do that, it wouldn't work. But you need to actually talk to the actual person who's going to do the study okay. and find out, you know, what their credentials are, what their experience is. And then the last thing, find out about their insurance. We carry twice the amount of insurance as traditional firms. You know, we've never had to use it, but you know, I've never had to use my seatbelt either. Oh, that's a good comparison. <laughs> well, fantastic. Any last final words of wisdom that you might have for the listeners uh, that could relate to environmental assessments, uh, mobile home park investing? I know that you're not a mobile home park investor, but you looked at nearly a thousand of them, if not more than a thousand. And so you've seen a lot in your time. But just generally speaking, any, any final words of wisdom you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Well, a- a- absolutely. And Kevin, thank you for asking that question. The devil is in the details. You know, environmental problems come in a, in a variety of forms. It's just not, you know, big hazardous waste, waste things. You know, if you're looking at a park that's got a wastewater treatment plant, get a local wastewater treatment engineer to look at it because those things can just, they, they can be horrifically expensive to repair. And that's not part of a phase one environmental assessment. You know, if, if a park's got its own well system, Pull all the records, find out, you know, what its uh, history of compliance is. The phase one, yeah, they'll pick up on that, but nothing replaced you asking the actual questions. Mm-hmm. And listen to your guts. When you're talking to somebody about their park, you know, ask questions like, have you ever had a meth lab here? You know, meth labs are a huge problem. You know, the stuff they dump, if you have to pick it up and move it, well, congratulations. You're now a generator of hazardous waste and your lawyer can tell you all the reasons why you don't want to be there. But Definitely do your due diligence and pay attention. And even though it might not look like it's got an environmental problem, this is a big investment. Do you really want to save, you know, 2500 bucks and then end up facing you know, just a, a miserable protracted problem because, you know, you didn't think you needed to do this? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, $2,500. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're pinching pennies that tightly, you probably shouldn't be buying the property that you're considering buying, right? Exactly. It's kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> and, and, and Kevin, one last thing I'll, I'll toss out here. You know, if you do have an environmental assessment or a report, we look at those things for free. You know, we have clients and strangers send us environmental assessments and we'll read through them. It takes us less than an hour. And we'll send a note back saying, yeah, I think, I think this covers the bases. You just need it updated or whatnot. Or sometimes people will get studies that say, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And we'll look at it and go, wow, you really don't need to do any of that stuff. That's, mm. Those recommendations are actually silly as well as expensive. So, you know, when in doubt and you're faced at reading an environmental assessment report a seller's presenting to you, have somebody else review it. Well, that's fantastic. I appreciate that service, Mike. And so fo- folks have an interest in learning more about you and your company. How, how can they reach you? Well, you can just Google Renz and Associates, R-E-N-Z and Associates. And we pop right up 
and give us a call. We're in this mostly for the adventure rather than the money. So you can call us <laughs> up in the middle of the night and somebody will be delighted to talk to you. I wouldn't suggest that. That's probably not a good suggestion to put on the show. <laughs> Someone's going to take advantage of that. It happens. Uh, it's not a problem. Yeah. So Renz and Associate, R-E-N-Z, RenzandAssociates.com is the website. And uh, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have learned a lot. And we'll look forward to hopefully sending some business your way. So folks, that if you're listening in, if you're looking to buy a mobile home park, definitely do not skip the environmental assessment part. Again, as, as Mike had mentioned, average cost, you're looking somewhere in like a $2,500 range. It's, it's a, such a minimal price to pay for peace of mind. With that, Mike, you have a wonderful day, my friend, and I uh, we'll look forward to chatting again soon, okay? Pleasure's mine. Take care. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com, to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.